0: This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California for July 30th, 2023. The title of the message is For the Grace of God Appeared. Well, if you would now open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. We move on from that first section, after um, looking at some of the various groups that, that Paul uh, encourages Titus to teach, he now moves on to uh, something more more foundational, kind of going back from from the imperatives that he gave in the first seven verses, and now he's returning to those gospel indicatives uh, to ground everything else that he's going to conclude with here in this letter. He's he's starting to wrap everything up, saving the best for last. So here now uh, the reading of God's holy word beginning in verse 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, few people have influenced my uh, theology and and my understanding of the gospel and the Christian life more than, and I've probably mentioned this more than, uh, uh, in the past, but you know, Tim Keller, Jack Miller, and, and all of my mentors have been instrumental in helping shape who I am as a Christian and how I minister as a pastor. And I remember when I went off to college, you know, I um, was was a very uh, weak Christian, not not very strong, and I thought Christianity was uh, a bunch of rules uh, and a list of do's and don'ts, and and I thought, Jesus, yes, Jesus saves me by grace, but, you know, I need to, to live uh, for him by works. I mean, I didn't say it that way, but that's how things worked out in my own heart, that God saves me by grace, but I need to stay in his grace by works. And so it's kind of a backdoor legalism. And I wonder if many of us functionally live that way in our Christian lives, that we know in our heads that we're saved by grace but in our hearts, we think, well, God saved me. Now I can, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a, a pretty good person. And I, I, you know, I'm not so bad. So I can now try to earn God's love by being good and doing good works and not getting into trouble and coming to church. You know, every Sunday, doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do. And God will love me more and not less. Uh, and uh, that's, not, that's not a great way to grow in the Christian life. Um, and we all know how we're supposed to, be, to live in our heads, but not really in our hearts. And so what I didn't learn uh, and what I didn't realize was how hard it was to actually live by grace. I mean, it, it sounds really easy, but it's the, one of the hardest things to do, to live by grace. Because we, you know, we're all recovering Pharisees. We're all recovering legalists, right? We want, we want something to brag about. We want something to boast about. Look how good I am. God, you should love me because of how good I am compared to the other sinner next to me. It is, it is really, really hard to live by Grace. And, um, and I didn't realize until then, until college, when, when I had um, Pastor Keller as my pastor, I didn't realize how much I still needed the gospel. I still need the gospel uh, as when I first believed. And I love that hymn, right? Uh, an, an Amazing Grace. Uh, the point being that we, we're not only saved by grace, but we're saved by grace to keep on living by grace and not by works. And this is much of the struggle of the Christian life. We're all recovering uh, Pharisees who fall off the wagon and we fall back into living by works. And so this evening, Paul lays out a helpful outline for what it means to live by the grace of God and not by works. So let's see how to live by grace. Uh, first, we see how to live by god 's grace in verses eleven and twelve. Paul gives us two very important foundational truths about god 's grace right? there 's a reason why he begins right here before he goes into uh, the imperatives later on in verse eleven and twelve that god 's grace is a gift of grace that brings salvation to us as the beginning in the foundation of the Christian life. At the heart of God's grace is that it is a free gift of God, right? It's something that we can't manufacture or drum up for ourselves. It's something we don't have in ourselves, but something that God gives to us because we don't have it and because we need it. Look at what he says there at the beginning of verse 1. For the grace of God has appeared, right? And what that, what that implies is that it's something tangible, it's something to be given, something to be received. It's a gift of God. Uh, and not just a gift, but it's, it's, it's a gift that is more than what we normally envision grace to be. Whenever we see that word appeared there, right, at the end of that phrase in verse 11, whenever we see Paul using that word appeared, uh, Paul usually uses it to refer to the appearing of a person. You know, it's, a, it's that idea of, of being on a stage and the curtain lifting up and the actor appearing, the person appearing. It, it's, it's the same Greek root word from which we get epiphany, right? For, for the appearing of the three wise men uh, after the birth of Christ. And so here's a few instances, right? Don't take my word for it. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, 2 Timothy one ten, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Or later on, we're going to see, uh, or what we see here in in, in Titus 2.13, that we're that um uh here in verse i mean later here in verse 13 uh, that we're waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of what of the glory of our great god and savior so you can see he he expands on what it means for the grace of god to appear in the coming of god and savior jesus christ who appears so I think Paul is talking about here the gift of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who's not only the Father's love begotten, uh, the incarnate Son of God, but he's also the very gift of God, the grace of God incarnate. And, and, and what's beautiful is it's this idea that God incarnates himself into our humanity to, to be our Messiah, and then he gives himself to us. That's the perfect picture of what God's grace is, giving Himself to us as a gift. He comes as the God man, born of a virgin, born under the law to save those who are under the law from the condemnation and the wrath of the law. He is the gift, the gift in the person uh, embodied uh, of God's grace. Most think of God's grace, I think, as some kind of principle or way that God relates to us. And don't get me wrong, that's true, right? That's what we mean when we say that we're saved by grace, right? As a principle, as a way. We live by grace as a way of life in, co- in contrast to uh, uh, by works. But it is a principle and a way of life that is grounded in, in a person, that we live the way that he lives. We live the way that he gave himself for us to live. And that brings about the character of grace that he embodies, that Paul is saying has appeared and brings salvation to us. That I think, I, I think that acronym of the acrostic, that God's grace at Christ's expense is just right because God gives his riches in Christ. So in order to live by grace, you must receive that grace in the giving and the receiving of God's one and only Son. He is the one who has appeared and brings salvation to all men, all people, you and me. And it's this gift of God's Son who brings salvation for us. This is what Jesus came to bring and what he offers in himself he appeared in our humanity to save us from our human sins. He appeared to live a perfect life that he sh- that we should have lived but we couldn't. He appeared to suffer and atone for our sins as he suffered for us on the cross. He appeared to rise from the dead uh, in order to rise from the dead after 3 days in the grave. He appeared to ascend in order to ascend to God's right hand and save us to the uttermost. He appeared to intercede then for us as a guarantee that by faith we are saved, not by our works, but by his works. And this has several implications for us in the Christian life. First, God's grace begins with the giving of Christ and everything in the Christian life derives from that first and that that primary foundational truth that, that, that the Christian life is that once god has given to us his son then our life revolves around his son around that gift it's the gift that from which we build our life we live our life that the 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 center of our universe the sun around which all of our lives circle in orbit so everything we do is a result or a consequence of that grace. And as we see in verse 12, everything we do in the Christian life comes after being saved by grace, as a result of being saved by grace. So we do everything because we are already saved. This means we can't slip back into a work salvation as if we can earn God's grace. That ship has sailed. That's sometimes we kind of hold on without without knowing it, that we can never earn our salvation that we've already received all that we need, and so we live by grace. And by the way, you know, this is the best and most powerful motivation uh, for grace, I mean, for the Christian life. Sometimes we think, you know, fear, instilling fear in our in fellow Christians is going to move them to grow in their Christian life. Sometimes we think guilt, inducing guilt, making them feel guilty for what they haven't done or what they're doing badly is going to motivate them to godliness in the Christian life. Sometimes we think telling them uh, that God is going to be angry at them and that God is going to punish them for their, for their disobedience or, their, or for their lack of obedience. And we think that is going to drive people to godliness in the Christian life. No, friends, brothers and sisters, the most powerful motivation for grace is knowing that you have been and you are loved by God so much so that, he, that there's nothing you can do to earn any more or less of God's love. You have God's love in totality even though you are not that per, you are not perfect even though you slip and fall even though you fail and fall god loves you he's given his one and only son for you how will he not do everything for your benefit and it is that 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 experience of god's love unconditional love his total love his his in unfathomably deep riches of his love and the giving of his son that will win you over and that is what we call grace it's because he loved you and because he saved you that now you are happy you joyfully um, uh, you, 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 know, you don't have to be persuaded you know that you want to live for one who has loved you in such a way. And, uh, and that's why the people who grow the most and who experience the greatest victory over sin and who, who have an aura of, of God's majesty and beauty and, and grace in their lives are the ones who know, who know this grace and are compelled by that grace. Not by guilt, not by fear, uh, not by... Uh, um, any other negative kind of, uh, not like, not like you know, whipping a horse to go forward, right? but wooing them with God's love. They will go to the ends of the earth and do whatever God desires them to do because of grace, not by fear or works. Uh, secondly, everything in the Christian life, uh, again is because we've received God's grace and, um, and so we love because he first loved us. We live by grace because he first graced us uh, and saved us to live for him. And this... This grace, this bringing of salvation in the giving of his son in Christ Jesus, this is what trains us. Look at the rest of verse 12. Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, God's grace in Christ so radically transforms us, so radically transforms why we live and how we live that we can be trained to turn from sin and live godly lives for him. That's how powerful God's grace is. And, it, and, and what this implies then, see that word train? What it implies then is that living, you know, renouncing ungodliness and living a godly lives is not something that comes naturally to us. We have to be trained to do. What does that mean? It means that we have to work at it. We have to practice. Even if we fail, we need to keep going. We need to have strategies. We need to build uh, our fortitude. We have to drill. We have to, to drink deeply from the well of God's grace and in his word. We need to uh, sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. We need to be ready to receive. Uh, uh, criticism, helpful criticism, constructive criticism. We have to be willing to be encouraged, rebuked uh, to live the Christian life. It doesn't come naturally. Like, a, like, a, like an athlete training for the Olympics, we train to live by grace by letting grace shape us so that we would love our sin less and to turn from it more and more and to live for godliness more and more because we desire it more and more and that means self-control and discipline and that's what we're going to that's why Paul adds that in there to live self-controlled upright and godly lives shaped by his grace and so what we see here is grace given in the past helps helps us to live for the present but not only that it helps us to live in the present because of the future. Which brings us to my next point. God's grace is also a gift of God that teaches us how to live in the hope of Christ's return. Uh, Living by grace has a future forward-looking dimension that empowers the Christian life. I think John Piper's book, uh, uh, Future Grace, the, The Purifying Power of the Promises of God, uh, I remember when the title, subtitle, I think, was The Purifying Power of, of Living um, by Faith in the Promises of God. And it's his book on how God's future-oriented promises uh, of his grace empowers us to live for him in the present. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 13 and 14. At the end of verse 12, Paul talks about living godly lives in the present age. And then look at what he does in verse 13. He ties that living in the present by attaching it then or, or, or anchoring it also into the hope of the future. You see that? Waiting for our blessed hope. Right? Maybe you could, you could probably even say that living by grace is a life of waiting. Not a passive waiting, but a, a, an expectant waiting, an active waiting. That everything you do, you're doing in preparation for his, his certain coming. Right? That's, why the apostle, that's why Jesus gave those parables uh, of the virgins. Or, or the, the parable of the, um, the, the, the women who, are, uh, uh, who need oil in their lamps. And they're supposed to wait up. Right? And so they were supposed to, to be ready by filling up their, their, their uh, uh, lanterns with oil, but they didn't really think he was coming, so they didn't really fill up their lanterns. And then when the, when the, um, when, uh, when the master of the house finally returns and they're like, oh, I don't have enough oil, you know, they were not prepared because they weren't really waiting. See, the Christian life, everything we do is an act of waiting. Because Jesus is coming back. And so uh, we, we live by grace waiting for the blessed hope. And what does that hope entail? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you might say that we live by grace in the first appearing. And we live out that hope for his second appearing. So it has that f- past and future dimension as we live by grace through faith and some of the ways that hope helps us to live by grace is the truth that this world this present evil age is not our home this is not our ultimate home so we shouldn't make it our home we we need to hold on to things very loosely and not set our hopes on them It places everything in our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our happiness, our identity in light of eternity. And this is the whole point of Hebrews 11. And the heroes of the Old Testament uh, who live by faith, they had the hope of the eternal glory that is promised in Christ and it it shaped the way that they live. They were future-oriented, hope-oriented people. uh, Abraham could leave his city to live in a foreign land because he was looking forward to a heavenly city whose architect and builder was God. This is why Moses could forego all the riches, power, and privileges of being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, the fleeting treasures of Egypt, He was looking for the reward that would come and the heart of, of that blessed hope is the return of such a, sh- a savior who willingly purchased us who gave himself look at what he says there verse verse 14 right? this is what Jesus did for us in the past that we're that helps us to hope in the future who who purchased us by giving himself for us to redeem us from all all lawlessness. Not only does He purchase us, but He purifies us through that purchase. Look at what He goes on to say: to purify for Himself a people, you and me, and not only to purify us, but in order to make us His possession, that we might be His, like a husband uh, has uh, embraces and, and his wife, and vice versa. To prepare, purify himself for his own, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again now, we're not saved f- by good works, but we're saved for good works. I think we always, we love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we forget 10, right? That we were saved by grace through faith apart from works, so that no one can boast in order to do the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And so Paul is reflecting that same that same truth here. And let me just put it this way. The, the, as we're waiting for the blessed hope of Christ's return, because Jesus has purchased for us, purchased us for Himself in the gospel, purifying us now through sanctification, and He possesses us then what does that mean for you and me? It means that we belong to him. At the very heart of Christian discipleship is that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. That our life is not our own. We belong to him in body and soul, says the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. That is our only comfort in life. That is our only purpose in life and in death. That we belong to him because he he has taken ownership of us in redeeming us. So, so that, what that means then for you and me is we ought not to live for ourselves. I know that's, that's a really, really something that I think we take for granted, something that's like, duh, right? But, but how many times have we lived our life and what God wants is just totally not in the picture of the decisions that we make, the priorities that we have, uh, the way that we spend our time, money, resources, Uh, The choices that we make. Do we prioritize that we belong to God or do we belong to ourselves? So um, and when we know what Jesus has done to win our salvation, to win our hearts, then what that means is we will wait for him. We will want to be with him when he returns. We will hope for him, uh, thereby living for him in the meantime. You know, uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the character, the forward-working character, is that when we know how much God is, Jesus has loved us in the past and he's coming back, when we know that love, then we are going to live in hope for that love. And this reminds me of... Um, uh, that scene that 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 story arc in in uh, Jane Austen's uh, book Pride and Prejudice where Elizabeth uh, is prejudiced by all the the things that she heard about Darcy and uh, and Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth and and he proposes uh, to her and he and he does it in the most awkward and In really bad way like you're just as you're reading it or as you're watching it on the in the movie you're like oh I can't believe he said those things and of course she's not going to marry him but uh, but he but he continues in his love for her he is so changed and humbled by that rejection and he knows that he loves her then later on her family goes through all of these difficulties and in the background of the story Darcy helps her and her family. He makes all of these sacrifices to save her family from from uh, being her, having their names dragged in the mud, so that everybody would reject them, uh, and um, having her, his his best friend change his mind about marrying Elizabeth's sister. You know, and because they they're, they they are in love with each other, but Elizabeth didn't know any of that until someone told her everything that he had done, all the sacrifices he made to save her foolish sister who married off with uh, uh, with uh, with uh, the foolish man, all the wrongs that he made right so so her sister could marry Mister Bingham, the man she loved. And when she finds everything out that Darcy had done for her and her family, her heart changed to where she began to love him. And so she hopes for him. And when Lady Catherine, uh, uh, whose daughter she wants to marry Mr. Darcy, when she gets wind that Mr. Darcy is going to ask Elizabeth, she comes right in. Uh, before and she kind of swoops in before Mister Darcy comes, and she demands that Elizabeth deny and push off Mister Darcy's uh, marriage proposal, and and she's like, "What? No, I'm not going to do that." And she kicks kicks uh, Lady Catherine out. Why? Why does she refuse to give in to Lady Catherine's demands? Because she she's found out she found out that. Uh, Mr. Darcy, all the things that Mr. Darcy had done for her, and she's fallen in love with him, and so she is going to wait for him because she hopes for him. And that's the way God wants us to love and to wait for the Lord because of all the things that he's done for us. Satan and our sin is telling us, push off the Lord. What has he done for you lately? Has he really loved you? But you know the truth all that he's done for you. you. You love him and you wait for him. And so you're going to say no to Satan and to sin. And you're going to live uh, in, in, ble- in the blessed hope of Jesus' return. This is how the hope of grace compels us to say no. And to, to, and, and to wait for Jesus. And uh, we come now t- towards the end here. Uh, God's grace, finally, is a gift of God, uh, not only to teach us how to um, live and how to hope, but how to learn, uh, how to to be taught by God's uh, grace, to live for God's grace. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 15. Paul tells Titus, he says, declare these things, right? What things? Everything that he's he's told us from verses 11 to 15, and actually probably the, the whole of the letter, but in particular in this context, verses 11 to 14. Living by grace begins with the gospel of Christ in the past, in his first coming, and for the future in his second coming. It means declaring the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, as the only savior of the world, because there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And in doing that, not only preach the gospel indicatives, but to proclaim the gospel imperatives, to exhort and to rebuke with all authority. Look there, verse 15. To tell people what God commands of them to do in light of the gospel, empowered by the gospel, for the gospel, with the gospel. So Paul, again, continues that great pattern of gospel indicatives that empowers the gospel imperatives. That like what God has done in the gospel is so that we can live for him through the gospel. And with this comes the pastoral authority and responsibility of, of the ministry of the gospel. What God has done, he calls then pastors, elders, uh, as, as representatives, as, as ambassadors of the gospel to, to exhort uh, and to uh, rebuke with all gospel authority. And then on a smaller scale, he calls us to encourage and, and rebuke one another, you know, as brothers and sisters. Uh, but in particular, he calls Titus then to exercise that gospel authority and to use it. And that what that means then is, um, you know, I will not, Exhort or rebuke you in my own authority based upon my own opinions about how you ought to live your Christian life. But but the Lord has given me gospel authority from the scriptures to command you to to follow his commands, grounded with the gospel, to empower you to live for him. And sometimes I you know that means just telling you, hey, you know what you're doing and how you're living your priorities uh is sin um and that the lord is calling you then to to return to the the foundations and the truths of the gospel and live uh, for him in obedience and so um so i hope that that will give you some context that when pastors and elders are are called to exhort and rebuke with authority, right? Not not our authority, but with God's authority. Uh, it's incumbent upon you to listen to that authority. Um, so let me close with a quote uh, that I learned about living by grace uh, that that Tim Tim Keller learned and he learned from from Jack Miller. Uh, he says this, and I I think it it just embodies uh, everything that we've talked about here in Titus, that we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. All of the Christian life flows from the good news of what Jesus has done. Growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel. And from there flows the power of the Christian life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for these wonderful truths of the gospel. Uh, Lord, help us then to, to live in light of that gospel uh, to to do all that you've commanded us to do to live for you. Uh, Lord, help us then to remember what you've done in the past, to hope for you when you return, and that we might when you return, you would find us faithful because we have been saved by grace, to live by grace to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.